You will also have four expertises, so you will get nature. Six, six expertises. As a rogue? Uh, you get the four, plus Scout gives you two more. Oh, shit. for the Mundangerous Sanatorium in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 166 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking poxes, plagues, and pandemics, and how to make them count. But first, the rogue traders take their leave in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the rangerer favors all enemies and all terrains in the character creation forge. So Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Archvillain Games. They're having a Kickstarter from October 1st to 30th, apparently not Halloween, selling character sheet gauntlets, which are kind of like binders for your character sheet. Have you checked these out? Yeah, I, I took a look at them. They're, they, like, they're, they're like pretty cool, they're right? They're like metal things. Well, resin, yeah, like plastic things. But you like slide a sheet of paper into them, and all of the trappings of your character sheet, like a D&D character sheet, are engraved into like the holder of the sheet, and you just fill in little windows that have space for like you know your stats and your skills and all that stuff you just like plus three plus three plus four plus zero minus one like you just fill in the blanks yeah it's like a superhero mask for your character sheet yeah but it looks like the cover of the old like third edition books yeah right? which were honestly some of the best covers that dnd has yeah, done they look like tomes yeah right? <laughs> except they're like three-dimensional and they have like depth and stuff uh they're you know made of resin well apparently it's a patent pending design with figurine level detail which i guess makes sense if you actually look at them right there's um raised bits like it has a, a tome with locks and things yeah, right? yeah like the yeah. the rogue one has like little bits of uh like a dagger and then like little potions or whatever like smoke bomb things that are just kind of sitting in it like the uh the wizard one is like dripping with arcane substances it's really neat yeah just like a high-end mini mm-hmm. um because there are detailed covers for the fighter, the rogue, the cleric, and the wizard. So, go screw, monk. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's going to be a stretch goal. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can get them painted or unpainted if you're really into that sort of thing. Shane, I don't know. Maybe maybe you want to do that. You got washes. Yeah, if I want to paint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably just get it painted. Um, they are made of high-durability ABS injection molded plastic. And they have spent over $40,000 on design and prototyping for this thing. They've gotten it patent pending, so I'm pretty sure it works. Uh, that is more than I have spent on virtually anything. Certainly more than anything RPG-related. Mm, yes. Uh, we did not spend that much uh, time or energy invested in this podcast, for example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you can get a paint kit add-on uh, from Army Painter. So when you're using it, you can open the cover to access the full character sheet in the front. You turn it over, and then you get a complete spell sheet on the back. If you don't like the standard 5e character sheet, which, you know, eh, you can just use a blank sheet of paper or really whatever you want. Yep, it's designed to lie flat on the surface of the table and blend in nicely with your terrain and miniatures and everything else that you've got laid out there. And there's a sliding tray to hold your character sheet that snaps into place. So you can head over to archvillaingames.com or search for them on Kickstarter to grab the gauntlet today. And, of course, we have a link in the show notes. Shane, I am very happy to report that I think 
the Thrillicon bug is biting other people. Because I'm sorry, what? Well, right now, dear listeners, we are uh, trying to plan Thrillicon, what, 2018.2? This yes. would be the... Uh, 0.5. Okay. We're, I'll, I'll we're go halfway with that. to 2019. Okay. <laughs> Works for me. The second one where we go away for a weekend and just play games. I have a friend who, to be quite fair, I don't know if it was uh, inspired by us, but they're doing it and we did it first. So I assume it must be inspired mm-hmm. by us. No one right? has ever done a gaming retreat before. No, no. We were the first <laughs> last year, patent pending. Do they have a pithy name too? Uh, they certainly do. Okay. They are going away to a house playing... Uh, one D&D campaign for the whole weekend. They are, they just hit level four in Curse of Strahd, so of course they're calling it Vampire Weekend. Oh, man. I love it. I wish I was there right now. Strahd is the kind of villain that you want to, like, have a solid two days <laughs> to go against. That you want to dedicate a weekend to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just gets creepier and creepier. <laughs> Wait, he's, he's here again. He's, uh, but he hasn't, he hasn't gone away. He hasn't killed us. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to our Thrillicon, our next Thrillicon, because I am behind on mini painting. So I've got a ton of stuff assembled that I need to get painted, and uh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. You and Susie sitting there at the table while, I don't know, the rest of us cry or something. Right. <laughs> don't make me stare into the abyss again. Speaking of staring into the abyss. <laughs> Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the lush and fertile world Malajact, the Rogue Traders and the survivors of their two best companies of armsmen have been guests in the Verza House, the beautiful fortress manor of Lord Harlock. But after learning of the true warpy nature of the engine that powers the complex, they have elected to smash it with a massive power sword called a clave. It is really the only thing that we do correctly, which is, ah, it's the warp. Smash. Yeah. <laughs> Stab it. I mean, I, I feel that way every time our uh, astropath flare, you know, speaks. Well, you say you did correctly, but if you recall, there was a round of intense debate on what the correct thing to do was. <laughs> we should study it. We should smash it. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that Trix made that decision for us. Mm-hmm. I'm holding the clave. <laughs> right. No one's trying to stop me. And even if you do, I don't think you could. So a light flashes, there's a a loud ring of a bell that deafens everyone, and when everything resolves again, you have returned to the dead world of Malajact in the 41st millennium, just Ooh, as you left it. Lovely. Uh, Lord Harlock and his chief engineer Jack are gone, as are all of the attackers who are on the verge of overrunning the fortress that you were desperately defending. Oh, actually, okay, cool, great. Mm-hmm. I'm and- into that. Uh, why? We don't really have any answers, but something else has gone too. The psychic interference that was playing havoc on our Vox links and preventing the aforementioned astropath flare from connecting to the warp and from uh, sending communiques to uh, other psychics on the planet, <laughs> namely our tiny inquisitor. As if on cue, the regiment's chief comms officer, Lieutenant Castus, happily reports that he has established a stable Vox link back to base. Yay! They were worried about us, weren't they? Uh, Definitely sending reinforcements. Man, they have been en route for days. Worried is an interesting way of describing it. I think uh, more annoyed that you haven't checked in yet is probably the more... Right. Oh, those rogue traders haven't checked in, but you know how they are. Like They're either dead or will be soon, so (laughs) they they haven't escaped. We know that. 
So, you know, we do report in. We tell them the location of the Verza house and request reinforcements from that Inquisitor, Felicitas, who, by the way, is 14 years old. In the process, we also invoke a specific code phrase that Roth's agent, Major Barrow, had given us so that Roth knows, and the Inquisitor hopefully does not know, that we are interested in some sort of partnership to get us all out of this mess without dying. So the Inquisitor only needs the information that you guys have collected from the library and from your experience um, with the engine that you have destroyed. So she orders you to just abandon your post and return uh, post-haste, which, um, you know, isn't easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, If you recall, the surface of Malajact is like craggy and desert and like full of this very fine suffocating dust and these terrible dust storms and bad feelings and just it's a it's a miserable place. Um, you also have a lot of wounded men. It's going to be very hard for you to make this journey um, in any type of time before the environment just kills you over. Yeah, it isn't. They are not uh, bad orders per se. They are just extremely difficult orders in our current situation. Yeah, they're just very naive <laughs> to the realities of marching a regiment anywhere. <laughs> All right, look, look. I'm really glad that you destroyed the ring. Now just walk back through Mordor. Right. <laughs> just come home. We'll have a meal waiting for you. Good work. <laughs> and we were like, uh, we're going to need you to send some eagles. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. We need some eagles. She's like, well, I can't send you eagles, but I can send you uh, some reinforcements that can meet you along the way. Um, so she does. She dispatches Roth um, and a contingent of troops to kind of, you know, meet you halfway, reinforce you, uh, make your journey survivable. Uh, but she insists you leave immediately. Which, like, sounds great, actually, because we may actually get a little bit of time to talk to Roth one-on-one and see if, like, there's a deal right. in the works without her around, which would be nice. Yeah, you get the impression that he volunteered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we suffered nearly 90% casualties, including those wounded who we thought would never be able to get back to base because there's just no way that they can make a five-day trek through a desert. Uh but it does seem like all we need to do is trek out for, what, a day or so and hopefully meet up with Roth. Yeah, I mean, you're just not capable of making great pace, yeah. but yeah. So you leave the relative comfort of the Verza house for the heat and dust of Malajact, setting out across a dusty valley littered with dried skulls. And we'll find out what meets us next week. So this week, we're uh, we're talking about a an esoteric topic, if you will. Making disease matter in role-playing games. Yeah, that's gross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You should just play more Nurgle games. Yeah, right? Nurgle, Nurgle rot for everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> did I save? No, you didn't. Uh, how did I contract it? Um, you're in this game. Okay, so what is the, uh, what's the problem with disease? Like, why doesn't disease matter anyway? Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of annoying because almost every game has some sort of disease or disease mechanic. You know, they're in a book somewhere, but no one really uses them because it's really difficult to find a sweet spot when you are using diseases. Like, either they're easily solved. Uh, You know, in uh, most fantasy games, there's some sort of healing magic, like cure disease or restoration or paladins have lay on hands. And these are all available at pretty low levels, and they immediately and completely end normal diseases, right? So there's only really, like, five sessions of gameplay where you've got a disease that's actually dangerous 
But of course, at the same time, everything is dangerous. So like, there's nothing special about a disease. Right. Yeah. What's going to kill you in a month to six months to years from now is not nearly as important to you as the goblin that is going to kill you with that arrow right now. Right. And maybe that goblin is diseased. Okay. But I mean, the arrow is still the part right, that's yeah. dangerous. <laughs> the other option is that you get these save or die mechanics. You know, at low levels, you catch a disease that either is fatal, right? It just kills you because you have eight hit points, or it's enough of a drawback that the goblin can kill you because you're hobbled or can't see very well. But at high levels, if you have a disease that's strong enough to actually affect or hurt um, really powerful characters, it's likely either just going to like kill you outright or completely incapacitate you to the point where you may as well be dead for this session, which is boring. Yeah, it turns out that like terminal cancer patients don't make very exciting adventurers. No. Or at least not very active adventurers. <laughs> Unless you're playing Shadowrun. Right. <laughs> Unless you're just synced in. <laughs> so a lot of GMs end up turning their disease into a MacGuffin that has an extremely specific cure. This works, but it basically makes your disease a curse, and it's essentially a plot point. Yeah, and you can also only use that disease, or any disease that way, once. Right? Yeah, like in like you, a whole campaign. Yeah, you can't just keep getting these diseases that have very <laughs> esoteric, specific cures, like... That doesn't feel special after the first one. Right. You don't have lycanthropy and also vampirism right. and also a zombie curse. Plus, there's the mummy rot. <laughs> it's like, um, I don't know. Can we just get spacesuits? Dude, can you keep it in your pants? <laughs> Stop jumping in bed with undead. Is this sexy mummy? <laughs> you got to wrap it up with mummies. <laughs> All right. So when you're thinking about diseases, uh, you do want to consider verisimilitude. And honestly, I think you should, for the most part, ignore it, but take inspiration from real life. Like actual diseases in real life take days or weeks to incubate and often just as long to cure. Uh, or they just never get cured and, you know, your nose falls off in 20 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> A different form of mummy rot. It's mommy rot. Uh, or, you know, it just hinders you for the, the rest of your life. Um, all of those options are pretty bad in a tabletop game. So in RPGs, your diseases should be fast acting. You can maybe catch them even in one round and start showing symptoms immediately within seconds or maybe the end of combat or a few hours from now. But you can use tropes from real life to give your players a lot of info about that malady. You know, we're used to hearing about real life diseases and, you know, how you might catch them and how you might spread them and uh, how you might cure them. Yeah. So when you contract disease, typically you have a saving throw or some type of check after you've, you know, usually taken damage, but it, it could be some other ability, right? Some other contact with a particular creature. Um, and then mechanically, you are now determined to have the disease. Which puts you in the situation where, as a PC, the best thing you can do to protect yourself against disease is to have a high AC or really good armor. But that that mirrors poison more than it does disease. You know, like we're not really worried about the goblin coughing at us, but for some reason, like if I take one hit point of damage from the diseased goblin now, I'm worried about catching a disease. Right. So the way this works in real life, it, it tends not to be that you've been bit by somebody that you catch a disease outside of tetanus. Um, it tends to be more like you've been exposed to something that is tainted with that disease. So water or like, you know, infected creatures like rats or uh, mosquitoes. Yeah. Now, 
you have options like low-level spells like purify food and drink or you know if you're out in the woods and your characters have survival they could cook food thoroughly or boil their water and that works to prevent uh, catching a disease through ingestion but that doesn't stop them from having to wade through a feeded swamp or you know finding that a a passage in the dungeon that they have to get through has been flooded and is now underwater and who knows what's in that water Uh, or even just you know fighting creatures in melee you're within five feet of the thing um it's crawling with fleas uh or it's giving off some sort of noxious odor or releasing spores or whatever i mean weird magical diseases could be extremely virulent and all you have to do is be in the same room yeah also, it's a time-honored tradition amongst adventurers to search the corpses of uh, of your fallen foes, or uh, more, even worse, undead. Yeah, that zombie was still wearing tattered clothing. Maybe there's coins in the pocket. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, those seem like good places that disease could incubate and uh, might become rather virulent if you were to disturb them. Hmm. Yeah, I like how, uh, in, you know, you always have adventurers being like, I'm going to check for traps. All right, that's great. There are no traps under this fallen corpse, uh, but there's no deck save to dodge microbes, and I'm pretty sure you weren't checking for, I don't know, pus. Wait a minute. Do we have germ theory? <laughs> <laughs> History check. <laughs> Do I know what pasteurization is? Right. <laughs> All right, so once I, one of your characters, or you know, you as a player have or you as a character have caught a disease, this is where the rules really start to break down. You know, um, it usually doesn't spread to others, but that's sort of the the operative thing we think about when we're talking about disease in real life. Sure, okay, one person has it, but the really scary thing is when it starts spreading to other people. But most RPG diseases, like you get it, uh, and then it's a question of whether you're healed from it or whether it gets worse and how exactly it affects you. And occasionally you have ones that'll spread to others, but it's relatively rare. Having your disease spread is a really good way to limit those easy cures. Yeah, I and I like this because it doesn't require like a magical disease to circumvent mm-hmm. spells and healing because like it's easy if you have one person who immediately comes down with boils and clearly has a disease. The paladin walks up, lays on hands, leaves five points of the pool gone, and hey, now you're magically better, right? But if there's a lag period between showing those symptoms and that player could, or that character continues on, maybe two or three people are infected over the course of the next few hours, and they're going to show symptoms at different times and be equally contagious to others around them, right? So it becomes less about can I just touch you and heal you and more about how do I deal with this big problem that I need to contain so that I can use this simple mechanic in order to fix it. Yeah. Like I can cast lesser restoration. No big deal. Second level spell. Um, and I do that as soon as I see you have boils, that's terrible. Right. Uh, an hour later, someone else had it. Yep. Uh, well, I'm going to run out of second level spells. Yeah. This <laughs> is, this is getting out of hand. Like, wait, who, who else is going to show up with these? Right. I'm going to wait to see if I have it. <laughs> Exactly. So so this becomes less about having that solution, right? And more about organizing the world in order to use the solution that you have. Yeah, if players don't know who is sick, especially if you're getting into a situation where there are NPCs around, then it can become a story element on top of mechanics. Like, who is going to get the cure spell? Like, is the paladin going to make sure that they use all the land hands on the children? And like, you're a grown adult and you're an adventurer. You're just going to need to deal with it. 
Um, do people need to be quarantined? What if they don't want to be quarantined? How long do they need to be quarantined? Do you stay here while that happens to enforce it? Right. I like the idea that you have these adventurers who are, you know, not all that clean, right? It's hard to get a shower out in the wilderness or in a dungeon where you've been for five days exploring corpses. Uh, it seems to me that the most likely vector for an ancient terrible disease to get back out into civilization is on the boots of adventurers coming back out of a dungeon. Uh Uh-huh. Or what about that rescue mission where you've got to go, you know, uh, get the merchant back from the hobgoblins Mm -hmm. who probably are also not very clean themselves. Right. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, you bring, you bring it back to civilization and now you have to like manage the NPCs that it has been spread to. Right. And then think about like, what do you call this disease? This mysterious disease. That showed up when this party showed up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That might be your legacy. Patient zero. Right. Legionnaire's disease, yes, because you're a legionnaire. Right. (laughs) And of course, um, you know, there are certain kinds of players, maybe myself included, who might say, wait, this spreads very virulently and then makes it difficult for you to fight in combat. How how can we keep just one of us infected? Right. (laughs) And then send them in first to fight the enemies yeah weaponized disease is always uh, both creepy but perhaps very effective (laughs) perhaps never good (laughs) (laughs) probably never neutral either (laughs) (laughs) like if always if using poison is always evil leprosy probably as well (laughs) weaponized leprosy so in order for this to work the effects of the disease right like the symptoms and and even more so like the degenerative effects, the the toll that the disease takes on its victim kind of needs to fall into a sweet spot, right? Like has to be harmful enough that the character notices it, but not so debilitating that your character is useless and can't do anything to contribute to the adventure any longer. Yeah, that's no fun. You may as well just be dead. So if we look at the fifth edition D&D Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, it has three diseases, which I think sort of serve as uh, interesting examples. You've got cackle fever, which incapacitates you for a minute during combat. Uh, You also have sewer plague, which prevents healing on long rest and halves the HP you gain from hit dice. Um, These effects are all bad enough that you must immediately deal with them, right? If you like fall down and can't do anything because you're cackling with laughter every time there's combat, you're going to get stabbed. Like you're going to (laughs) die. Right. Also like 10 rounds of combat where you get to do nothing. Sweet. Right, super boring. Like, just me as a player, I, I'm not going to go to a dungeon. I'm not going to pursue the quest. Right. If, uh, like, our quest is now get these people healed. Right, and, like, with Sewer Plague, you know, you can maybe go through one long rest dealing with that, but by the second one, you realize, okay, we got to stop and fix this. This just is, we can't move forward with such bad heal rates. Yeah, it actually becomes a sort of form of reverse railroading where this has now happened and the party can't continue on the quest that they were originally trying to pursue. And even if they do, and they're like, no, we must push through for the greater good, they're just going to die. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, you can do that if that becomes a core part of it. The problem is that tends to interrupt the momentum that your story already had, Mm -hmm. right? Unless this is an intentional plot point that you're carefully managing, like what this is actually doing is saying, hey, pause that cool thing we were building to a crescendo and like, uh, let's go have a bottle episode over here in this corner for a while. And like, oh, we'll get back to our main plot next week. Totally. It's a totally a bottle episode. Yeah, we're talking about making diseases matter, not making diseases the only thing that count in your game. Right. <laughs> 
So there's a better option. There's the, the third uh, disease listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide is a nice example. It's called Sight Rot. Uh, you catch it, and you take a minus one to sight bait to sight-based tasks. That includes uh, attack rolls or, you know, if you need to read something, whatever. A minus one's not so bad. It's bad enough that you, you, you want to get rid of it, but you don't have to immediately do it. But each day, it increases by one until after five days, you are blinded because your eyes are just bleeding and then they just, you know, bleed shut. So it starts off small, but it is very obvious, right? Your eyes are bleeding. Hey, we need to do something about that. Um, how you feeling? Oh, well, this sucks. Uh, I'm obviously taking a mechanical penalty on my dice rolls, but you know, it's a minus one. Even a minus two, you might be like, okay, this is bad. I would like to get this healed as quickly as possible, but you know, we don't need to leave the dungeon immediately. Right. That's, that's the thing is if you introduce that late, that can be a minus one or a minus two penalty that carries forward to the conclusion and then gets wrapped up in the epilogue. Uh, What you don't want it to be is like very early on, I realize how bad this is. And now I got to shunt it off to the side for the side quest to fix my sight rot. Right. And even when it gets all the way to the end, right, you are blinded. It ends with a crippling, but it's not a permanent injury. Um, you know, specifically in, in a D&D, traditional D&D setting, you can fix blindness. You know, you can heal eyes. Um, would, you know, and if I... Remove blindness. Yeah, like <laughs> lesser restoration cures blindness. Yeah. It's just like, there you go, you can see. <laughs> um, you know, like a, a sci-fi game could be something like... Augmented Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, or just surgery or right? like a dope visor like uh like jordy like jordy the forge okay i don't is that know who you're is. thinking of no th- who else has a dope visor wait i was thinking of lavar burton and star trek yeah yeah that's the jordy the forge okay well his name is lavar burton from star trek works for me okay. you know he was essentially a butterfly in the sky yeah he needed that, that visor to read his rainbow <laughs> he could see so many uh kinds of electromagnetic radiation that he very well could see that rainbow and others ultraviolet rainbows <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's a weird conception of color you've got. <laughs> Pretty sure he's still only seeing one rainbow. Three. Three. There's also the infrared rainbows. <laughs> I don't think that's a rainbow. It's gamma a... radiation rainbows. Uh, God put the gamma radiation rainbow in the sky to say, I will never again irradiate the earth because I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's just, it's going to be irradiated for a very, very long time. Speaking of curing diseases. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you've got a disease. Now you've got to get rid of it. How do you do that? So first of all, you have to know what disease you're dealing with. So you need to diagnose it, uh, which gives you an actual use for the medicine skill that oh isn't just stabilizing an ally. Right, finally. <laughs> yeah, like I like the, hey, you don't know who uh, who's sick and who's contagious. Does anyone have medicine? No, nobody has medicine. Why would anyone take that? Right. Of course, if you are going to diagnose someone, you've got to risk exposure to get close enough to diagnose it, which is another great vector, which I think really sort of mimics the the sort of um, the physician's dilemma, especially back in the old days when you never necessarily had any idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. You didn't know how things were spread. Like you said, no germ theory. You're just like, I... Guess I'm going to risk my life by going to see uh, what this patient has. Yeah, like a leper colony. Yeah. So even in most RPGs, even when a character has a disease and there's no cure available, like no cure spell, uh, a single save is typically all it takes to fix it, right? It's, It's save or suck for a little while longer, you know? But as soon as you make that DC 13 constitution check, like you're good, hey, it's gone. 
Um, which it's a fine mechanic if you want to use this disease as a little bit of a speed bump, you know, give someone a slight penalty for a few hours or until they can get like a good night's rest. Sure. But fourth edition had this interesting thing called the disease track where it required multiple saves to either suffer the full effects of the disease or to be completely cured of it, right? So you'd start at one level of it. It had an initial effect. And then if you saved, hey, you were cured. But if you failed, then you got worse, like a different or similar thing happened. The penalty got worse or like, you know, being dazed turned into being stunned or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you could go down on the track and the bottom of the track, it was maybe it was death with a very bad disease, but often it was just you are you are permanently weakened. Right. You know, until you can find some way to, to actually cure that. And then, you know, as long as you didn't get all the way to the bottom of it with enough successful like successful saves you could sort of work your way out of that and eventually be cured even without necessarily magical healing so another part of that was that you could rather than the sick character making a check or a save uh to manage the disease track you could let your party members use medicine or heal skills in order to replace that um, that pulled other people into solving this problem rather than just like a daily die roll for one character. Yeah, I really like that mechanic. Like in, in 5e, what you get now is someone making a constitution saving throw or something like that. And I guess the best that other people can really help is, I mean, I guess the help action. And it's like resistance sort of, spell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, you're, you're exactly right. Like a cleric who's casting resistance. But for some reason, the medicine skill doesn't have anything about like long-term tending care. Like why can't I as a doctor, you know, uh, help you make that check? I like the idea, like I make a medicine check and you use that instead of your safe. Done, we're good. It actually makes me effective as a doctor. Right, or make a medicine check and give advantage on your safe. Yeah, exactly. Some sort of bonus. So if you go back to the 5e DMG, uh, we've got this sight rot, right, which has a pretty good mechanical effect. It also has a very specific cure that is also not rare, which is nice. So it says, you know, if you can get your hands on the eyebright plant, which is found in a lot of different swamps, you can make a poultice and like this will help cure it. Which is good because if you're in a dungeon, you probably don't have access to it. So you can't just immediately cure this thing. But it's not severe enough that you need to immediately cure it. But as soon as you're out of the dungeon, it's not that difficult to like find a swamp somewhere, go get some eyebright. Right. Right. Um, you don't then have to say, okay, now we go on a grand quest to the top of the mountain to find this one flower so that it can cure this random disease. It's, oh, no, no, we'll go get some eyebright. Okay, that's good. You make a survival check and, and you're good. Exactly. But we're also kind of on a timer because I got four days before I'm blind. Right. And that also pulls in like, you know, other party members, right? Because it's unlikely the person who is afflicted with sight rot is going to be the one making those survival checks, particularly after suffering the effects of sight rot. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out survival by smell, a little more difficult. Eyebright feels exactly like poison ivy, and that's terrible. <laughs> as, a, uh, as a hypothetical listener here, I am screaming right now because all of these things are all well and good, except that they're circumvented by a simple thing called magical healing. Yes, that's the main problem, right? Is I just cast lesser restoration, uh, greater restoration, or uh, cure disease, whatever. Yeah, we'll don't, just get rid of that. Don't even bother creating mechanics for it. And if you do, don't write them down because I'm just going to bypass them. Yeah, like at mid to high levels, these cures are super easy to come by. So there are a couple of ways to limit magical healing without, you know, being crappy about it. 
the first one is like you can just be fine with people using magical healing. Yeah, you can also just overwhelm it with the volume of disease you're facing. <laughs> like there are lots of exotic diseases in this dungeon. It is a dangerous jungle. Yeah, I think like Tomb of Annihilation does that really well, mm-hmm. which is, hey, <laughs> everything's gross and you're going to get sick. Right. So you have to, you know, choose how many resources to invest in which diseases to cure because it's expensive to do so over time. Yeah. Also, like those castings are one disease, right? You don't pick all the diseases and get rid of them. Right. Yeah. You go to one brothel. <laughs> <laughs> pick up seven diseases. Three castings. <laughs> I can live with the other four. Uh, also, like even if it isn't a volume of diseases, if someone is casting lesser restoration, it's a second level spell. Like it's not a ritual. There is an opportunity cost to that. It means that they're not casting something like invisibility or hold person or you know cure moderate wounds. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you know they they're using that resource to fix that disease. They've decided that that's what they want to do. Let them do it. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, like this eyebright. Uh, issue require a specific cure for this likely exotic disease now, this only usually works for magical diseases because you know you get into the wording of like why won't you let me use my ability lesser restoration says any disease um there is a bit of a MacGuffinness to this but i think that's kind of fine yeah you just want to tie the source of the disease to something in the adventure right so that it's a magical dis- like you know, if there are rumors that um, prior adventurers who have investigated those ruins have suffered these terrible like outcomes later, well, you tie that to the magical disease that they contracted in there that was unbeknownst to you until you caught it. Yeah, I like this as sort of like a disease as an investigation. You know, the the issue isn't so much, uh, you know, going on the quest or you know, locating a thing or, or killing a certain monster. It's figuring out what we need to do. And once we actually figure out it, it's pretty simple. But, you know, we we have to investigate and, and experiment a little to figure out what we need. So maybe it's a specific magical ingredient. Uh, maybe there is some sort of quest, you know, that that's a MacGuffin. There are lots of different ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it requires a certain kind of divine magic, right? Like maybe it's a, a divinely inspired curse or something. Like... I could see a disease that can only be cured it by someone casting lesser restoration who worships a specific god. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if like that disease is caused by a different god. Right. You know? uh, maybe the maybe the caster and the victim both have to believe in the same god because that's the catch of the disease. L- lousy outcome for the atheist. <laughs> it always is, right? Yeah, yeah. The wall of the forgotten souls sort of. Also, if you're an actual atheist, uh, you don't really like evidence, do you? Well, no. I mean, that's, so that's interesting. Like, uh, atheism in these settings has to be something more akin to, like, yes, deities are very powerful beings, but, like, they don't deserve our worship. Like, that's stupid. Right. Like, Planescape Athar. Yeah. Or maybe you can set up some sort of hierarchy. Maybe the paladins lay on hands works on this disease, but the cleric's magic doesn't, or vice versa. Why I, is that? I love tying it to individual people like this like uh same thing if it would require like primal magic or like a Mm. druid or something Mm -hmm. to cure not a cleric like because almost certainly they're willing to help you but you must prove that you're worthy or do something for them in exchange or pay them something right fix a problem the the cost will be social instead of simply like resources almost certainly so what is that going to be and is that worth it or can you just live with a minus five (laughs) you tell me 
Yeah, I like that you can build a lot of story elements into that. Um, maybe the disease is caused by primal or um, druidic spirits who are not happy with the encroachment of civilization. So your god from the city probably can't cure this because we specifically made this disease to stop you. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I like that as magical diseases, not just being punitive and more difficult to take the abilities away from the members of the party, but thematic in trying to reinforce a point. Mm-hmm. You know, there were diseases created for a reason, by somebody who is trying to um, change the world in a certain way. Right. And even if there wasn't intent behind it, the disease arose out of a certain set of circumstances. Right. That if we understand that, we can probably figure out how to actually fix it. Yeah. Another thing you can do is you can have a disease that cannot be cured by yourself. Like no matter what you do, you cannot cure it yourself. Somebody else must do it for you. And I love the idea of that being created as like... um, like some god of law or civilization mm-hmm. or something being like or no. cooperation or something like that right yeah, yeah like like the loner in the woods does not work like you like human beings cannot be self-sufficient they must exist within a social order so you must use the social order or you will die from this disease yeah i want this disease to exist i don't want it to be virulent I want it to exist so that you always have a reason to cluster together and help each other. You are very lawful neutral. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can also, as a way of stymieing easy magical healing, have your disease progress on to physical injury. So sight rot eventually blinds you. It is now no longer a disease that can be cured as a disease. You are just blind. Now, blindness can be cured by a slightly different thing. I mean, in this particular instance, like lesser restoration cures a disease and yeah, blindness, but it doesn't have to. That's be, right? a D&D problem, not yeah. necessarily an every setting problem. Right. Like if you had a disease that was, um, you know, uh, making you have a limp and then you moved at half speed and you take a penalty at, to acrobatics and athletics, that would work too. And of course, lesser, lesser restoration doesn't fix that. Right. Um, you know, it's basically not as bad polio. <laughs> wow. Fast acting. <laughs> But even after the polio is gone, there is a lingering mechanical effect. Now, that can then be dealt with, whether that's cybernetic limb, whether that's regeneration or some lower level spell. But it isn't just a simple, I cure disease, I lay on hands. Right. Or maybe it makes you blind and deaf. <laughs> so you got to cast it twice. Right. Um, it's also could be fair to have a disease that can't be cured directly, um, but simply has to run its course. So over time, like the impact will wax and then eventually wane to nothing. Yeah, this gives an incentive to really make sure that you don't catch it. Um, But also you're going to want to make sure that it's not a disease that ends up being fatal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, when we say wax and wane, like it's got to be a pretty light wax and a pretty quick wane or at least like a light touch there, right? Like taking a minus one for a long period of time is is fine in like D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, if it escalates to a minus five, then uh, I'm not having fun anymore, right, with, with that disease. Like I can't have my sight rot just take time to be restored. Yeah, I like the idea that you've got to get through the worst part of it in order to get better. Like you right. get progressively worse right. and the, the worst day that when you have the shakes and you've got that minus five is always the last day. The next day you're going to be fine. Your fever is going to break. Right, yeah. And then you touched on this, but you can definitely run into situations where the cure ends up worse than the disease itself. And then you've got this tension about like, how badly do I want to be cured? Uh, Maybe it, you know, especially these magical diseases requires some sort of 
human sacrifice or sacrifice of something that is yours or something that is not yours. And of course, now you're dealing with the person who doesn't want to give that up. Right. Uh, it might also require conversion to a deity or an order or a like pledged or an oath to a group. Uh, or it could just be that your village is in a terrible location. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what cures you? Not Leaving. living here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, you can't take your stuff because it's tainted too. Well, bye, Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then as a story element, um, consider the superstitions that crop up among sick people because there is probably a cure to this disease, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people know what it is even if they think they know what the cure is. I, I think you can get into some interesting stories where people are 100% sure that doing this action is going to cure them and is actually probably doing the exact opposite. Oh, right? not, not just cure, but cause as well. Oh, yeah, it could be the... Wasn't that like a plot point in Neverwinter Nights, actually? I think, yeah, because there's... A, it totally was. There were, in the very beginning, uh -huh. right? And like some people were fatalistic about it, and it was like the punishment of the gods, and other people were like, well, it has to be some type of sabotage by some foul agent. And then, spoiler alert, there were all these priests going around, like, blessing people to hopefully, like, cure it. But that's how it was being spread. Mm -hmm. Whoops. <laughs> huh. Um, yeah, I really like the idea that the specific action people are taking to try to cure it like let's you know those that tribe over there is that it's their witchcraft and that is what is causing this right. let's go like, kill all of them is like that's they were the, the ones keeping it at bay yeah exactly <laughs> oh it's like a bubonic plague let's kill all right. the cats right they were killing the rats <laughs> right <laughs> yeah or in like a more engineered virus sort of situation right you would biologically engineer an agent that is not only resistant to normal treatment, but is going to be strengthened by the normal course of treatment that like most doctors are going to perform. Right. It requires a blood transfusion or to keep you from dying. Right. Yeah. Or like spreads it, you know, Tylenol bolsters it. Yeah. yeah. I like it. So there is no point in introducing these elements as highlights of your campaign. If there aren't long-term consequences, right. To shape the direction of your campaign. So what are some potential, uh, some potential impacts. So I think from history, you can look at often people who had a disease ended up scarred by it in some way, often physically, right? Smallpox scars, you could, you could tell. Um, and especially when you're dealing with like these medieval societies or superstitious societies, it marks you in a way as like being, being other, like you had this horrible disease and I don't necessarily know that you don't have it anymore. Right. You know, or how do I know that like you aren't still carrying it? Yeah, disease-based discrimination. That's a theme I want to introduce into my game. <laughs> Maybe don't go too heavy into that one. <laughs> but it is a good excuse for like why a particular group might be on the outskirts. Right. Um, you probably don't want to get into a situation where if you have a PC that does it, that like you have scarring that reduces like charisma. charisma. Yeah. yeah, that's probably too strong of a punishment. No, but it is the type of thing where it's like, it could be recognized, right? And it could be a source of sympathy or a source of like brief mistrust, mm -hmm. something that gets commented on just casually, right? Like something, a little character detail that gets noticed um, does enough to kind of like remind like the players at the table of like, yeah, remember that disease? <laughs> like, like it, man, it really like screwed your character up, huh? Like, yeah. It was a big thing for him. Yeah, and it's, it can be good for world building, too. Like, if you have characters who've been in a place for a long time, 10 years later, you see a person with, like, a particular kind of scarring, and you know that you were 
one of the victims that we actually saved right. during that plague that was there for one summer. Or, you know, if you caused it, yeah. <laughs> like, well, no, no, no. just feel a little more guilty. <laughs> hmm. Oh, I'm being stabbed. Oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, there's also, you know, the possibility of uh, creating immunity. Like if it is especially like a more conventional disease that is cured through conventional means and not magic, like you would develop antibodies and potentially become immune to that disease. Which, of course, might be the reason that the party is specifically selected to go on a mission. Right. You, know, you have to go into these plague ridden lands because you've all had the plague. You're right. fine. Um, and then like on the flip side of that, there are immune carriers, right? Um, people who carry that immunity that can be used and weaponized against the disease so you can have the exact same like plot point in reverse you need to go in to find those people yeah you can also have flip that and have like typhoid marys who themselves are not susceptible to the disease and so don't show any signs of it outwardly (laughs) but are still spreading it everywhere they go right i do like uh, that idea that you brought up that if a disease is cured magically you don't develop immunity right because it just wipes it from your body yeah like but if you you have to heal naturally through some sort of saving throw right and then you are immune yeah i like that a lot you almost probably have to be a certain level of affected by it to gain that immunity too Mm, right mm, like mm. if you go the full course of it you're almost certainly immune if you naturally heal but if you just kind of like get it and then avoid it it's like a cold (laughs) like not that virulent of a strain there's like you know 150 different kinds of poxes right Smallpox, medium smallpox, <laughs> medium pox. Oh, big pox. Big pox are the worst. Bigly pox. <laughs> uh, and then let's just briefly mention curses. I think um, any disease that you sort of take to the extreme and make it supernatural and, and make it like a huge plot point is basically a curse. And I think we'll probably talk about them more in depth in uh, another episode. Yeah, I mean, I think the... The main difference between how you treat a curse and how you treat a disease is that curses are almost always intended to be the consequence of a choice, right? Like you have chosen to do something that has then given you this punishment as a result of that choice. Whereas diseases, I think, can be a little bit more random or a little bit less calculated. Yeah, you don't necessarily deserve the disease. Right. The curse someone thinks you did someone yeah exactly somebody intends for you to have that curse because of something you did right but mechanically you can think about a curse as a disease in terms of how is it contracted how is it spread and how is it cured by touching the sword yep. uh, mm-hmm. it is spread by touching the sword <laughs> it is cured uh it's not sorry you're dead yeah <laughs> it's it's a curse <laughs> it's cured by um <laughs> what is it stone to flesh is that the unpetrified Flush to stone cures all ills. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I do remember though, um, in the 30s when they first op- started opening like Egyptian pyramids, I liked how you know the mummy's curse. Like uh, people who opened it kept dying of mysterious circumstances, mm-hmm. and then it just turned out like it was a disease. Right. It was like bacteria that was growing on like three thousand year old grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not like elaborate traps. Or was it? Well, it maybe was that's just the excuse. Yeah, we're also large. <laughs> yes. I feel like most of those have been triggered by dumb grave robbers and in the in- ensuing like or intervening three thousand years. But who knows? I should hope so. I don't want to have to go in looking for limestone because yeah. that's all gone. If I'm gonna sip this mummy juice, <laughs> I'm not also gonna be dodging a pit trap to do it. I'm gonna gain all the powers of a mummy. <laughs> all right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That's just me slurping on the mummy juice. 
<laughs> well, then we are almost certainly going to need a new Ishin soon. So let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So Total Party Thrill is also brought to you by Cobalt Press. Cobalt Press publishes the Creature Codex which brings you nearly 400 new foes for 5th edition. Everything from acid ants to zombie lords. Yeah, you get a dozen new demons and five new angels. That's unfair to the angels. What did they do to not deserve full treatment? Look, the angels are far stronger. Also, what about the devils? What about the devils? I, as a representative of the devils, am here to serve you summons (laughs) for including no new devils. Well, the demons are going to reject that summons. With their teeth. You can hold them in contempt. (laughs) The angels are here to spread a plague. The angels angels will respond to that summons. (laughs) Oh, I'm spreading this plague of you being on fire. It is spread by my flaming sword. Uh, there are also wasteland dragons, perhaps caused by an epidemic. Gross. And dinosaurs. There are all new golems, including the altar flame golem, the doom golem, and the keg golem. I will say, every time I say the words altar flame golem, I'm thinking, ah, this must be some sort of uh, ability that lets this golem change fire mm-hmm. to maybe different colors or different sizes. But your dear listener, who cannot read this, it is altar as in something that you sacrifice something upon. Oh, see, I was thinking like altered beast, you know, where oh, like okay. it's, it's just a golem until it becomes flame when it powers up. I think all of these things are likely true and <laughs> hidden deep within the pages of the creature codex. There are elemental lords and animal lords to challenge powerful parties, chieftains and other leaders for rat folks, centaurs, goblins, trollkin, and more. There are new and dead, including the Hierophant Lich to menace lower-level characters. What do you think Hierophant Lich juice tastes like? Uh, I bet it tastes like Ecto Cooler. <laughs> you are correct. It was a test. <laughs> the thing is, it's as difficult to pierce the uh, the container as a Capri Sun. <laughs> you know, flip it upside down. Yeah, I know. Pop but, it the but then it doesn't sit flat on the table. Uh, so drink you... it all in one gulp. Well, I know, but that, yeah. You can't let that Hierophant Lich juice get warm. Right, get that sweet, sweet sugar rush. Plus, if you love DSPN's James Intricasso, and who doesn't, he's one of the designers. You can use the monsters in your favorite published setting, or populate the dungeons in a world of your own creation with these dangerous, dangerous creatures. So pick up the Creature Codex on the Kobold Press website, and surprise your players with monsters they won't be expecting unless they listen to this show. Link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the ranger Er. The ranger-er. Ranger-er. The ranger-er is, of course, more ranger than ranger. See, we're, we're still doing Rob Still Zombie. doing the Rob yeah, Zombie we're thing, still doing huh? that. Yeah. yeah, we're never going to stop. Okay. <laughs> so the, we've talked about this before. We've complained about this before at length, I think, in an entire episode, actually. Uh, the rogue and the ranger have very similar abilities, but the rogue gets them earlier and does it better. Often. So instead of dealing with this slight, we are going to build a better ranger without using the ranger class. What else did we do this with? Oh, I think we did it with a swashbuckler, right? Swashbuckler with no swashbuckler. Well, that was before the swashbuckler was a thing. Uh, mm. Yeah. That was like the very first build was a swashbuckler. Yeah. <laughs> the first two builds. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So what is the Rangerer? It is Scout Rogue 13, Samurai Fighter 6, Knowledge Cleric 1. 
All right, I see where this is going. Yeah, I think you're going to dig this build. Mm-hmm. So from Rogue, we will get 76 sneak attack dice. You are extremely mobile and sneaky and evasive. You've got cunning action. You've got uncanny dodge, evasion. You get a 10-foot speed increase, and you can move without provoking when an enemy gets too close to you. So you will have six expertises, uh, four from Rogue and two from the Scout uh, archetype, which you will have nature, survival, and four more of your choice. Plus, you will have reliable talent in at least 11 skills. And eventually you get advantage on initiative, and then the first creature you hit in a combat is going to grant advantage for a round to everybody. So continuing on this uh, theme of expertise, you'll get two more from Knowledge Cleric. That'll oh, be... how many is that? Eight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of them? <laughs> uh, so you'll have Arcana and Religion, um, along with Nature, which mimics favorite enemy against dragons, elementals, fey, giants, humanoids, beasts, undead. I think that's pretty much all of them, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And Aberrations probably, too. Oh, yeah, you're right. That, yeah. that would be in uh, Arcana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do I know anything about this? Yep. Yep, I do. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I know everything about them. I rolled at least an 11. You will also get three cantrips, uh, which, of course, you'll take guidance, resistance, and something else. You get the cleric goodie bag of cure wounds, healing word, and bless. Plus, you get um, cleric, like first level cleric ritual. So you know you have ceremony, which look, hey, get married. I, I like if if I had the choice, Aragorn would have been the one to conduct my wedding. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you get things like detect magic, um, detect poison and disease, which remember also detects poisonous creatures, mm-hmm. which is very rangery, and of course purify food and drink. So from Fighter, you're getting two ASIs in just six levels, extra attack, action surge, and another skill. Of course. Plus, you'll also get Fighting Spirit three times a day, which gives you five temp HP and advantage on all your attacks for a round, which if you don't have advantage and there's no other way for you to gain sneak attack, you Fighting Spirit, you'll get sneak attack. Try to make sure it's also the same round when you also action action surge. Right. So in terms of leveling order, I think we want to start with Rogue 4. Grab that ASI. Go ahead and do that. Uh, Then get Cleric 1. Then uh, take all of your fighter levels and finish it out with Rogue. Um, If you don't want to make sure that you have no Ranger in this build, you can just sub Ranger for fighter and you kind of get like this Super Ranger. Super Ranger. the most Ranger. Super Ranger. Ultra Ranger. Mega Ranger. (laughs) Ultra Mega Ranger. (laughs) Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. (laughs) By your Rangers combined. (laughs) So, Ishan, who is your Rangerer? All right, my Rangerer. In keeping with the theme of this episode, she is uh, a leprosy victim okay she is unclean the person that you uh, meet on the road and must shout by law i am unclean keep your distance you don't want to catch this disease for me so she's an archer doesn't get anywhere near the rest of the party stays away make sure that uh they don't uh get infected but she's extremely effective from range uh, and is the tracker, the hunter, lives out in the woods, probably actually doesn't go to the inns with the rest of the party. She like stays in the outskirts or maybe just out in the woods and the rest of the party meets up with her. And they're like, hey, how have you been? And she's like, uh, I've already tracked our quarry. <laughs> <laughs> I know where they are. Do you want to get moving? Okay. How, how was the food? <laughs> 
Mine was delicious. I hunted and killed it myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually like this even more if there is an actual ranger in the party. <laughs> right, yeah. Who she keeps calling soft. This is the problem. <laughs> You're going to dunk on a party member. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe a ranger NPC. How about that? Perfect. <laughs> Someone you can fearlessly antagonize. <laughs> Um, and you know, it's probably some sort of like MacGuffin disease, right? Cause I actually, actually don't want her cured of it until maybe very later, some sort of quest. Shane, who is your rangerer? Uh, my rangerer is a, uh, traveling, visiting professor, uh, who spends his time going through ancient ruins, you know, deep in the wilderness, a lot of jungles, a lot of deserts. Uh, a lot of inhospitable regions uh, where he has been expertly trained, maybe an Indiana Jones or a Lara Croft or a Nathan Drake type figure. Any of those, any uh, of yeah, those. Yeah, your pick. Uh, but yeah, like so that's that's what he does uh, as sort of fueling his research. He's right? the library ranger. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's the librarian yeah. ranger. Yeah, I'm going to track my enemy in the pages of this tome. Well, I got to figure out where he's likely to be. And then when I get there... You've always got survival expertise. That's right. You track where the enemy's going to be, not right. where they are right now. Where they should be. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and we will read it on the air. Today we've got Great D&D Podcast, five stars by Hyperlexic. I found these guys through the Don't Split the Podcast Network. They share my love of... Wait, is that the same one as last week? No, this one just also says Everton. Okay. I found these guys through the Don't Split the Podcast Network. They share my love for Everton, so they can't be all bad. Seriously, they have a good viewpoint in gaming and are a pleasure to listen to. So, yep, another uh, another typo or another autocorrect fail for uh, Eberron and Everton. So many soccer players listen to us. Also, gonna, what's the Don't Split the Podcast Network? We're end up with a lot of hooligans. <laughs> we welcome you. We welcome you, hooligans. I support Liverpool. <laughs> I support... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about this. I don't. I'm actually an Arsenal guy, but Ever- Everton's rival is Liverpool. I um, don't know what that means, but That's I, okay. I agree with you. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about scrying and remote viewing. And in the character creation forge, we're building the Eye of Horus. Well, that's it for episode 166 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Beholder share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found or visit beholdherpodcast.com.